This is an SM Media production. Hi everyone and welcome to this very special edition of SM Media, our special podcast. I'm Scott McPike by Stephen Harrigan from Harrigan's History of Heart and Hand. Stephen, thanks very much for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the invite. How are you doing? All right? Yeah, pretty good. We're just chatting and saying, you know, the festive period, I get two weeks off at this time of year, so... Uh, that means um, a few overindulgences in eating and drinking. So eat, drink and be merry, as they say. Brilliant. So it's, it's, it's one of the times you just enjoy every moment you've got with, with loved ones. Well, I'm bringing you a special podcast today. Just kind of, obviously, Saturday coming up, it's the 50th anniversary of Ibrox Disaster, where 66 fans tragically lost a life. Uh, I just want to kind of ask you, ask you, Stephen, like, what's, how difficult is this time of year, obviously, like... I'm young and I still, I don't know if, as I said, when I arranged to kind of do this show, I was saying to you straight away, like, I'm going to struggle with this because I don't know the full details of the story. I've tried my best to research it over the years and I've, I've kind of thought, of, kind of, I think I've tried my best to kind of get a show in place and how, for, your, like for yourself, like what's, your, what's your kind of thoughts on the, the anniversary? <laughs> It's a, it's a big milestone this year. Um, I think it's something, I don't want to say celebrate, but it's something we have to remember. We have to always take it to focus. What happened at 66 people went to a football match and never came back. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned along the way, um, but the top of it is families are without loved ones, and that's never something that's acceptable, even back then in different times. Most of my experiences have came through to speaking to people. Um, I'm, you know, know people that was there. My grandfather has experiences. The person I sat next to Ibrooks um, was two friends from Knights who did it. So yeah, that that's mostly been my experiences coming. How I've got my lessons um, through these years. You know, I don't think I'm far off ages with yourself, but certainly it was taught to me and brought up to me at a very early age. Importance of this date, and importance of why we should always remember it. Yeah, definitely. It's always this time of year, but I think this year's a big one. But every year we, we do think about this game, this kind of sad time around about this time of the year. But we'll we'll get into kind of what happened that day. Obviously, the second of January nineteen seventy one was Rangers played Celtic at Ibrox in a, a traditional New Year Old Forum derby. It was a it was a big game for both both teams. What was the what was the significance? Was obviously Celtic were were obviously going through their nine in a row, row period. They'd obviously just won the European Cup. Like, was did, were Rangers and Celtic kind of close, close at this point in the kind of running for the title? No, Rangers, we weren't particularly doing so well. Um, Celtic were very much a dominant side and, and very much in their pomp at this stage. So for us, it was just about the importance of an old firm fixture um, and trying to lay a glove on the other side of the city that was having so much success during this period. Yeah. Obviously, Jock Steen, Willie Waddle led both teams, and it was it was an uneventful New Year game. It was it was pretty uneventful during the game. It was now now up until the, the 89th minute. Jimmy Johnson gave Celtic a, a dramatic one 0 lead, which I, I think a lot of Rangers fans thought the game was over. But Rangers got the park and equalised with Colin Steen in the 90th minute, and the game finished one one. Like, what was your? Obviously, you spoke to a few people for the that were there that day. What was their kind of thoughts of the game? I thought it was a, a pretty, you know, it wasn't a spectacular game by any means. It was a very cold day, and there's a miss kind of drawing in. But the game was particularly uneventful, especially for an old firm game. And then uh, it comes to life in the final stages, of course. I think Bobby Murdoch hits a shot that hits off the bar. Yeah. It's turned in by Jeremy Johnson. And then basically from the prevailing kickoff, when you got the field, get a free kick. 
like in a left hand side, um, just in, in the left hand side of the box, whip it in. It's a very scrappy goal by Colin Steen, but that's the last kick in the ball. Um, so at that stage, it, it was celebrated like the Rangers in like a win because yeah. you know to lose a 90th minute goal, this isn't the days, of course, where you're playing five and six minutes or, or more injury time and stuff yeah. like that. So to go and get any equaliser at the closing stages felt very much like a win for the, the, you know, the majority of supporters in attendance there. I think if you're a Celtic fan in attendance, you'd be pretty disappointed that you let that slip. But other than that, um, it was a draw, which is always a good or seen as a good result in Glasgow. Um, because it's less, you know, um, going to be less trouble, less incidents to deal with, you know, traditionally. So both sets of supporters were probably leaving the ground. Celtic pretty disappointed. Rangers fans were in jubilant. Um, I haven't snatched that last graphic either. Yeah, definitely. As you said, as you said in that earlier on, and I, and I wrote this down as well, the, there was kind of misty conditions kind of set in during the game, which made it kind of difficult for for a lot of fans to kind of see the game and things like that. But what I just want to kind of say is as well, would I've I spoke to a couple of people who were there that day. My dad's friend was one of them. He said basically that that day he didn't he couldn't even see Colin Steen's goal because of the the fog and the mist. Like so, we move on to kind of after the game. Now, my what I always thought was, and I don't know, like that's just where obviously we kind of start with, with what happens after this. And my understanding up until a couple of years ago was was that when when Jimmy Johnson scored, a lot of the the Rangers fans that that were from Stayway 13, obviously left the ground to get home for early trains and things like that, whatever the case may be. And what I always understood, and I don't know, I don't think I was ever told this, I just assumed this, what happened, this is what happened, is that whenever Colin Steen equalised, a lot of the fans rushed back to try and get up the start, the stairs, and I think there was a, I always thought there was a crush in the middle, was this... I've I kind of read about this in the past few days, and this was confirmed not to be true. Like, did, did you hear that kind of thing as well? Like, when you were, when yeah, you it was, it's a great, it's a great myth. Um, I certainly, in my younger years, this was the one I heard first. You know, probably around the playground and stuff like that. Yeah, people always spoke about, um, you know, how it was a last minute goal by Constantine, not a last second goal really. That, that you know, people changed direction and the people that were coming down the staircase that created this. Um, but I was told very early on. By people that are close to me, that this wasn't the case, that they didn't believe that. And I think the myth got arms and legs as well when you've seen certain things like Upton Park had a sign for many years that uh, used to say, Remember, I leave slowly. So again, right, that okay. added to the, the mystique, yeah. um, you know, putting the illness back in the fans and, and telling you to take their time as they vacate the ground in the days. But yeah, certainly I think that's where the myth got kind of arms and legs. But for me, um, it was nothing more than that. Anybody that was there, anybody that really. Um, Deals in yet knows that, that that wasn't resulting. It was actually proven and um, not to be the contributing factor in the, in the inquiry that, that followed as well. Yeah, the thing with it as well as it was eight thousand people with the game and twenty thousand fans used Stairway Thirteen as the their, their exit because, as I believe, it was the closest exit to the subway. Obviously, you and I have been to Ibrox on many occasions and we've seen that this is the case. Like, how how was that? Like, how, I don't, I, I never ever understood. Like, how how did the exits work at the time? Like. Where were they? Where were the kind of staircases? The other staircase exit nine was basically you'd see where the, the gates are. Now obviously the gates have since moved. Yeah. Um so the club decks are built. So basically the, the entrance to the club deck now are with the John Greg statues. That'd have been um staircase nine. And then round the other side would have been stairway thirteen. And that's I think 
I don't want to say some of the stairs remain, but certainly you could see where they fall down to it if you walk yeah. past down to Subway. As he's speaking, of course, he used to be to the old ranger shop and everything else. Um, and you've got to remember, these grounds were built. Ibrox was like many grounds around Britain. It was one of the, you go up and then down to the terraces. Yeah. Um, most of them, it had some moderations. You know, cutting the capacity of Ibrox which used to hold 120,000, and now the capacity at this time was 80,000. But most of the moderations were very minor. They hadn't changed an awful lot since the, the days of, you know, after the Second World War. The only things that were added to really have any real significance, I think, were kind of, you know, roofing some places, called them the shed, that kind of thing. But there wasn't a great deal of infrastructure added. Uh, you know, the barriers were upgraded to metal, that kind of, and wood replaced. But apart from that, most of the grounds still resembled that. And they, all of them resembled that kind of oval shape that you see in old pictures of an awful lot of the grounds. It was just up and over the gravel, and then that took you down. So the, the stairways, if you ever stand down at the bottom, you know, going down to the subway from uh, the kind of, well, it's the car park now, the, the bit that you can walk around, I, but yeah. you, can, you can imagine how steep it must have been to get you right up and then uh, and back over the terrace. Yeah, that's what I've always thought as well. Like, I've, I've used that stairway quite a few times to to get to get kind of closer to my, my dad's car and things like that. And I've always the the one thing I've always said is the steeps were really the steps were really steep, and I never ever kind of fathomed just how how there was a hundred of them, hundred of those steps, how hard it must have been, especially on like a winter's day to to climb them. I mean, the only the only thing I can think is see this day and age. Uh, if you've ever been in the, you know, the stand behind the Galaxy Fur Park, that's right. a very steep staircase um, right, okay. as you're going up to the top tier. But obviously, it's nothing like it was because the gaps between the steps as well were a lot different. You know, there wasn't a yeah. legislation in place that had to be a set distance and, and set number of steps. So, yeah, it's, it's very steep. But that's how all grounds were constructed. You know, um, my grandfather and my dad as well always say that they were amazed that nothing ever happened at Hamden. And they yeah. said Hamden was the worst ground of them all, you know, in terms of going there, you really felt for your safety at that ground. So it wasn't unusual, and that was just how they were constructed. And um, yeah, it's it very much of its time. Yeah, and the stairway was separated by seven steel rails that, that some that some of them obviously gave way in the crosses. We've seen kind of photos that have, that have seen since, and there were grass banks at either side of the stairway that were were inaccessible due to the the concrete partitions that held the staircase up. Was that were they only just put in like a few years before that? I think they'd been added. There'd been a an incident in, in 1961, another tragedy with two two boys had lost their lives on that, that very staircase. So they've made yeah. some moderations. Um, and in that case, I think it was wooden slats that had gave way and and obviously uh, contributed in some way. So they'd showed them up by basically putting concrete pillars in, so they couldn't go in there. They put the, the metal railings and, and being forced them to, down the sections to, to split it up. And that was thought to just make you obviously pick a lane if you imagine as you're going down that staircase and spread out the volume of the fans when they're leaving. Yeah. And the after the game it was it's believed, I don't know, I obviously want to get your, your thoughts on this if you if you kind of believe what happened happened here, but the belief is a spectator lost their footing, causing a crush and people were kind of losing air gradually at the top of the staircase. Is that what you kind of heard as well? Yes, um, and I was told that by somebody who unfortunately was there, and, and I don't know if he was a direct eyewitness, but certainly um, from a very young age, it was very quick to you know point me in that direction. And, and again, going back to that we spoke about earlier, that myth of you know people turning back. He said, "No, it was somebody falling." I mean, somebody falls, the momentum going to take them forward, and it, it just gives that kind of domino snowball effect. That um, yeah, unfortunately ends in, in, in tragedy. 
Yeah, and the thing as well is, is that did you did you watch the documentary last night on BBC about it? The show jacket, the show jacket, it was a it was kind of a reconstruction kind of photo, and it just if that was if that was how it last it ended up, like the way the way the kind of people were just crushed at the bottom of the how how was it only sixty six? Do you know what I mean? Like it was just it, it looked it looked crazy, and I just can't fa- I just can't fathom how hard it must have been to to get out and. Eyewitnesses say that we're losing air gradually, but the, I want to just touch on obviously some a few of the victims that were, were mentioned kind of last night. The the five kids from Mark Inch and Fife, like that story, just kind of it made me just it made me near enough cry. It was hot. It was just a horrible story. But the the three set the three Celtic supporting friends as well with the five the five Rangers supporting friends that were they'd arranged to go to the game separately and they were going to meet up after the game and that. It's just how how heartbreaking was that to hear that story. <laughs> That's a story. That's the first thing you're told after you know that the facts are really to you about disaster. I think I think that's the first thing I can ever recall hearing about it, and it just breaks your heart. You know, yeah. I didn't realise that they'd went with or, or they'd went into Glen Rosses with you know a couple of Celtic support pals, and then they kind of split off. But for five boys to go and you know three of them buried in the same day, yeah. it's such a small town. Um, it's wound, the, the wounds that just never heal. I mean, how can you how can you ever um, you know deal with that? Five boys, five friends. You know, I, I go to the football and I'm sure you do for a number of years with my pals, and you can never ever imagine that you all just wouldn't come home one day. Um, it's just unthinkable. Um, and when it's such a small community, the impact that it is felt a lot greater than if it's a, it's a larger one. It doesn't obviously for the families that the impact is still very much the same. But when it, you see the pictures, you see the whole turnout. Um, yeah, it just absolutely breaks your heart. Yeah, really can I really had home watching it like yesterday with Peter Easton, Martin Payton, Mason Phillips, Brian Todd and Douglas Morrison. All five of those uh, young boys lost their lives that day. It was just horrible to hear the, the stories of their, their loved ones and their, their friends and that as well. Like the youngest victim as well, Nigel Pickup, was nine years of age. Like I just can't fathom that. I mean, to be honest, when you see me pictures last night, you think about it. Um, it doesn't surprise you because you think of young boys anywhere in that that kind of the crush when it happens, he's not going to have a lot of chance. He's not going to have a lot of height as well to, to get a lot of leverage um, in order to pull himself out. Um, uh, yeah, it's tragic. Nine years old. You know, know it's, it's um, horrible. Yeah. So much of his life to still live. Yeah. And I've heard you know, eyewitnesses reports, and I want to just kind of touch on a story I heard from, I spoke to a couple of people who, well, there that day they were they weren't anywhere near Stayway Thirteen, but they just told the the, the story of kind of stuff they heard as well about policemen trying to pull people out and away like, ambulance drivers and things like that trying to just get as many people as they can into ambulances and things. Just the the unsung heroes of the of of stuff like that are obviously the emergency services who are the first responders. But how how hard would that must have been for them just try to get as many people as they could out and get as much people to safety. Yeah, I mean, you, you think of the chaos that's in shoot soon. Um, the person I spoke to, the person that's next to my who, who was there, said that, you, you know, you could, as you come down the stairway, you knew it. You knew something was serious, he said, but you just couldn't help. There were so many people trying to pull people out and stuff like that. Um, and there wasn't, you know, you've got to remember, in 1971, there wasn't any disaster plans in place. Yeah. There wasn't any training for this. Or, there wasn't any protocols. This was very much in the hop. You know, I always remember my papa telling me that the first thing he ever got um, sense that something was, you know, wasn't quite right. He was walking down Shield Hill Road and he said he just heard it, you know, and seen ambulances shoot by him. He said the lights he'd never seen before, um, you know, the amount of it. So they were, he was very much aware something was 
going on, but you know, it wasn't until obviously much later on he realised the full extent of tragedy. You think with that policeman they speak about, and we spoke about last night, the documentary, who is that one that's witnessing it? It, it must be such a hateless feeling because you really are trying your best. But you know, I'm going to say adrenaline kicks in the afterwards. Yeah. There wouldn't have, there wouldn't have been any um, counselling or any help for him as well. And that goes for the people that were there. You heard the gentleman last night speak about it and say that you know he, he had to go back off to his work on Monday, and I'm sure he wasn't alone in that. There'd have been a lot of people that were probably suffering from you know the likes of post traumatic stress. There was just no diagnosis; it didn't exist. Um, and they're also victims of this as well. It's, it affects so many people. Um, you know, just just the whole impact of the events that take place. Yeah, we'll, we'll move on as well. Just talk about uh, Margaret Ferguson, who was uh, the only female victim to, to pass away in the incident. She was only 18. The story of her family, was, I thought, was very moving, just the, the fact that her, her dad had obviously told her not to go to the game. And again, we've, we've, me and you have probably been in that situation as well. You, you, defy your, you defy your parents and you do, what, you do what they tell you not to do. Do you know what I mean? It's, I just can't... I just can't Put that into words. Just how how heartbreaking her, the story our our family told. I think our sister had, had said as well. Just how how they've never ever been able to think like to to get out of their mind. Like fifty years on, it's just it's still it still feels like yesterday to them. Yeah, well, you know, you can imagine the last conversations they had with, yeah. you know, telling her not to go to the game. And, and obviously, in the days there wouldn't have been a, a vast a large majority of women that would have went. Um, to football matches, so she snuck off, passion for the, the club, um, went with her boyfriend, and obviously he, he and the story of him tripping, um, you know, losing losing her grip, and she she obviously falling as well. And I thought it was very heartbreaking as well when they told the story about the two men that came at the door. Yeah, um, you know, and one of them says that he, he went back down to Manchester, I think it was, uh, and that he would, he would never never ever go to another football match again. Um, such was you know, you know obviously his trauma that he'd seen it's his heartbreak and you've seen that you've seen the pain still etched in that family, you know, uh, fifty years on it's still very much it's very much real with them and of course it would be. Yeah, definitely, and as as well as that, like they talk they, they talk a lot about survivors' guilt and things like that. Like it's it's as you say as you said earlier on, like fifty years ago there wasn't there wasn't things in place for like post traumatic stress disorder and. And trauma and things like that it was just I, I just can't believe I just can't imagine what what they were all having to deal with and obviously the thing that always sticks out with me like whenever I've I've watched kind of documentaries and things like that and I've I've all I've also kind of like yourself just what we've just seen this second hand and not spoke to people who were there and like Jock Wallace and Jock Steen like the the assistant with the Rangers assistant manager and the Celtic manager lifting victims onto the stretchers and I just like that picture of Jock Steen will just like I, I never ever whenever I see it I'm just like that's it's it just sums up what was actually going on that day just a man like that just trying to help as many people as he could yes it's a magnitude of it and clearly they know because the manager sent the players away Jock Steen sent the Celtic bus away yeah um, he sent the team away and there's a, a story from obviously Derek Johnson. He says he's in the bath. A lot of the players like to obviously leave early after they types of games, so they would you know go and get changed very quickly and leave. And he was in the bath. Uh, he was the last player in there. And he says as he left, you know, you know, the bath at the end of the changing room, and um, the police were in there lying out bags. Um, and the policeman, you know, kind of looked at him and says, "This ain't for you. You need to go." And that's yeah. when it kind of struck him as well. And while that's going on, you get the managers, you get the you know the physios, anybody that had any sort of 
um, training or, or didn't just try to get down and, and do what they can just to lend a hand. And they pictures, you know, because you've got the fog and everything in the background, even now that they're so eerie, aren't they? Um, oh, you can't look yeah. at them without your heart popping. Um, and, you know, it's just, again, that's a gravitas of the moment uh, and how you know, desperate the situation are. Everybody is doing anything that they possibly can to try and save lives. Yeah. And obviously, most of the 66 deaths were caused by what, what they call compressive asphyxia, which which is basically when you lose air and 200 fans were injured. But when you speak, when you've, you you hear eyewitnesses, it was like the eyewitnesses that were injured, the people that were injured were, it was more bruising and kind of loss of air and cuts as opposed to like broken bones and fractures and things like that. Like, I, the, what did you kind of hear about that as well? Have you kind of heard the same thing that it was, because I've always heard like, the victim, whenever you like, if eyewitnesses saw the bodies and things, they just looked as if they were asleep because they were obviously they, they hadn't looked, they'd just lost air. Like, is that what you'd heard as well? Yeah, I mean, and there's, there's stories of people's watches popping, you know, due to the pressure. Yeah. Obviously, you know, people's belongings get lost, shoes very commonly. But that picture you, you said there, unfortunately, is one that um, I've heard, you know, a few times. It's, it's you know, it's, it's sucking out of life. Um, it wasn't a lot noisy. It wasn't, you know, huge screaming. That there was people waving white handkerchiefs in there to try and tend for help. And yeah. you know, it only takes a couple of minutes. You think, what, three, four minutes, and people are, are really struggling and, and and struggling for life and feeding for air. So they're trying to absorb any bit of energy they can. You can't move. And you know, that picture, that that diagram, you know, the graphic put up last night. There, there's no maneuvering room. There's no wiggle room. No. Yeah, if you bodies and top of bodies, there's just no way for you going. Uh, it's a bit like drowning isn't it you're just suffocated and the life is um, unfortunately sucked out of you yeah and I just want to kind of touch on the, the 66 victims just uh, I want to talk, to talk about their ages as well just one, one of them was obviously 9 years old we touched on Nigel Pickup 32 of them were aged between 10 and 19 it just kind of shows you as well like young these were young young boys and people had lived their whole lives in front of them and 16 and obviously between 20 and 29 12 between 30 and 39, 5 between 40 and 49. Some gentleman by the name of Matthew Reed was the oldest at 49. Like it's it just puts that into perspective just how many how many of these these people still with their lives in front of them. Yeah. And you look at a football crowd even today, there's no set demographic. There might be one slightly yeah. higher than the other, but but the thing that appeals to everybody is the love of the game. And that's very apart here with the kind of age disparities and the differences in age. These are just a bunch of boys, a bunch of men, and um, vast majority, and a, and a woman that are go, going to the game to enjoy the football New Year, you know, New Year's Day, and then um, on second of January, and, and this is what happens. Uh, you know, a simple thing causes such a catastrophic event, and it's a whole thing. It's complete tragedy. Um, you know, the ages of so much lifestyle to live in, and so many of them, and that's the thing that really breaks your heart. Um, you know, people that just don't return home, families that are, are stressing for the whole night, you know, again, because of the time it is and what was in place at that time, you've not got a huge system for identifying people. So that process stretches out over, you know, a day or two um, before people are, are formally identified as well, which you can imagine that the pain for the families as well is complete unbearable, just waiting for somebody to come back through that door without, without the, you know, the use of mobile phones and all the technology that we have available today, that you would be able to contact people and the weight that they had for, for the young boys and, and men that come home. And of course, 66 of them would never, never arrive. Yeah, and as, uh, just to touch on as well, we touched on kind of Jock Steen and Jock Wallace. It was 
Sean Fallon as well, like the, the self-assistant manager, he he was, a, I didn't even know this until I read up on this, he was a trained lifeguard and he revived a young fan with a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Like, how how on earth can can we just fathom what, like, these people helping, like, just doing what they can? And obviously, Sean Fallon will probably, I just don't know how to put that into words, just how how brave it was of him just to be, to get in the to, to do as much as he can just to help help the victims that were there and things like that. Like it's, it must have been so difficult. Yeah, and, and that that that's massive. Um, that's somebody's life. And again, there was no breathing apparatus you know available at the days. So there would have been certainly the amount that was required. Um, so his training, uh, you know, something he, he probably thought he never had to use again. Um, it, it saved life at, at, at such a a time when he should be going in and talking about football to kick in and to do that um, shows a mark of a man and, and to again bring somebody back it, it keeps it keeps one family from having that dreaded knock at the door doesn't it yeah definitely and, and when Amethyst began to arrive there was another story I read about this I just found very moving as well there was a couple of Celtic supporters bus that, buses that drove some of the injured to, to the nearest hospital like just we talk about like particularly last week we're, we're going to talk we'll touch on the kind of the football side of it and things like that but it's it's human lives as well and that's it, football rivalry goes out the window and I think that's like the fact that Celtic supporters bosses would drag would would help out and things like that and it, football goes it football rivalry goes out the window in a situation like that. Yeah absolutely 100 percent and you see that in the aftermath as well because I think yeah um, the benefit match is the only time that Rangers Celtic can go is one yeah. that that would have been a mixed crowd at hand and it play um, is it rest of the world select or whatever it is we yeah. you know run out three one winners where we're actually game scoring. Um so yeah, that, that's it. everything goes out the window when this kind of thing happens and everybody just does all they can to to help as best they can. But the thing is for, for most people, um, you know, it's a very helpless feeling. Um it must be such a such a thing to witness and have to go through um on all sides. Yeah, and obviously, like after after it, the the inquiry kind of started to find out what what happened, and it was a, a fatal incident. Inquiry lasted seven days, and it, it deemed the Rangers were were somewhat negligent. And I just want to kind of touch on this as well. Like also, Rangers did a previous disaster in nineteen o two. It was a completely different different cause which had, had caused the incident. It was a, a it was a wooden wooden turnstile would wooden stand and uh, you know this during Scotland England game actually continued but um yeah completely different construction and time um nothing to do with this one. Yeah and the con- concerns were raised I we touched on it earlier on about the two people were killed in the in nineteen sixty one in a crushing stairway thirteen and there was a couple more incidents as well like nineteen sixty seven saw eight fans injured in a another kind of incident stairway thirteen and then in, Two years later, in '69, there was 26 injured. What was there ever a kind of reason given as to why, like the the Rangers, like the Rangers board? I don't know if did they act on the incidents before to kind of try and enforce the the stairway and things like that. Was it did they try and kind of ensure safety before obviously the inevitable happened? Again, it's it's very difficult to measure it in today's terms and speak about it. I think at the time. There was slight alterations done, but it, it just wasn't the norm, you know. Yeah. Um, it's cruel and it's harsh in reality as that is. There just wasn't a lot done. I mean, even looking at the aftermath of this disaster, 
there's a green code that comes out, green yeah. code safety, uh, and that's in order to try and strike up a relationship between like the fire brigade and local authorities to get into to ground for, for this kind of thing, you know, to, to have a safety check on them. There was a Bondon Park tragedy, uh, I think it was 1947, uh, Bolton, where Francis died, that was the biggest um, incident until 1971 at Ibrox, and the yeah. lesson still really hadn't been learned. Um, so it's not just Ibrox, it's not just Rangers. A lot of people these days would, would of course, if it happened now, that would be a, a catalyst for, for, you know, more pressing um, concerns and obviously uh, legal ramifications, but it, it just wasn't the thing. You know, it's not the clubs are spending the money, they just didn't exist. All the incidents occurred at St. Rangers games. The problem is the managing the volume of the crowd. Yeah, uh, and, and that's an issue that goes on into British grounds um, for now 20 years after this. It doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't end with Ibrox. Um, the problem is always, you know, managing that volume of crowd. And as I spoke about earlier about the sign up and back, it's very much about self-policing in these days. It's about, yeah. you know, take care of yourself from the way out. And that sign just goes again to, to highlight what the, you know, how the reaction was and, and how, you know, the society accepted it. It's your responsibility to get yourself out of that ground. You speak about so many people and you speak to so many people who were told they could go to the game if they left early or if they stayed, you know, for five, ten minutes behind to let that crowd disperse. That was just how it was done. Um, the things that exist nowadays and allow you to, you know, flow out a, a game safely. Any kind of big um, sporting event or otherwise, um, with relative ease, just weren't in place. We didn't have crowd management, and, and unfortunately, um, the greater football world, especially in this country, um, didn't take the lessons on board either. Yeah, and Willie Waddle after the disaster just kind of made it sort of kind of made it his life's work to kind of make hybrids as safe as possible, didn't he? Like. I mean, I've, I've I've read the story, but I'm I'm going to Dortmund's Western Slav, uh, trying to pronounce this West Devlin Stadion for for inspiration to try and make it as safe as possible. And that it did it did make it his life's work, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Um, and that ground is a is a testament and tribute to all the people that died and all the tragedies uh, and Willie Waddle because you look at his vision, you know. And going back, I remember you know taking my papa to we're younger we go to. Um, same meals at their girl house. He was amazed at how the ground looked. It was just stunning. Yeah. You only have to look at, you know, when the Taylor report comes in after the Hullwood disaster, Willie Waddle's vision was so far advanced in the future. Yeah. The, the alterations to Ibrox were, were so, so small. I mean, it really was by that time just, um, you know, taken out where the, the old enclosure was, the standing area there, and replacing it with seats. There wasn't a great deal. You look at the work that the other clubs throughout the country had to do yeah. to embark upon and the money it cost them. We were years ahead of that, you know, 10 years after this, after we've got a completely rebuilt Ibrox. It becomes Ibrox Stadium, of course, and it just looks nothing like Ibrox Park looked, and that was a definitely model. He went about, he wanted to make it the best day. You know, he went to German Engineering to, to build the stands behind the goals because um, I think they're called goalpost um, structure or something like that. He was very impressed with it, and they held in the noise. So he spent his life, or the rest of his life, on that point, and he made a promise. He knew that Rangers couldn't afford another disaster either and he knew that the people couldn't have you know gave their lives an ultimate sacrifice for nothing so that was his life for going out and, and making it the, the place it is today. Yeah as you say we see we see Ibrooks even uh, 10 years after it is like the mid 80s and it was just it, it's such a massive difference and he he completely changed the sh- like they completely changed the shape of the whole stadium as you say like it was I mean they showed you that last night as well we completely ch- it was it looked so far out like I think the Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the the stadium went like the stand went out as far as Edmiston House. 
like now it's so far I'm it's, it's a walkway now like he, he just came he was so far ahead of the curve just to completely change the stadium and how how much like does Willie like Willie Waddle I, I kind of think as well Willie Waddle doesn't get appreciated enough just how much he it was ahead of his time and just getting that getting that in place and just making making sure it, it didn't happen again. It's visionary. I mean, to have that foresight and then to know where you want to go and speak to the people you want to speak to, well, it'd be Dortmund's very fair. I think they took in, maybe mentioned Gladbach and some other clubs as well in Germany. He clearly knew where he wanted, what he wanted to achieve and enough to make the changes. He had to... Not embrace it, but he was the man that had to sell it to the board because Rangers and club suffered on the pitch for years because the money was getting put in the stands, and rightly so. Yeah. But as a fan base, that was the sacrifice that we had to make at that time in order to get this done. And you see the shape of the grounds, and you look at even the reconstruction of grounds, even at these days. Take Hamden, for instance. Hamden's shape has pretty much remained the same. Um, yeah. I think of places like Parkhead and that as well. They've they remained pretty much that oval shape. But he decided, you know, obviously Ibrox had the old running track for the, the Ibrox races that used to go. And if you see any of the old games back in the 70s, I'm sure you see the, the cars that were parked in the, yeah. um, the sideline and all that kind of thing. He completely eradicated that and, and basically grabbed us where we had to be. And as I say, it was so far advanced in the 80s. We had the best stadium in Britain. In the 90s, we had the best stadium in Britain. Um, there was nothing in this country that could touch us. And just to have that full foresight and to push it and to take ownership of it and to put it really at the front of fans' minds why it was so important um, and, and what a wonderful job he did as well. Um, you know, a really rem- a remarkable job by a remarkable man. Yeah, definitely. Couldn't agree more. It's just that last time of the year we, we do think of this, this, and obviously this year's the 50th anniversary. How important is it that we, we remember we remember this every every year, every every anniversary just to get reminders that these people went to a game of football and never ever returned and that they sh- that should never ever happen. It gets even more important I think with every passing year because yeah. you've no- you're now losing that generation that was there, that generation that the likes of us that have had, people that will you know, push on this importance of, it, of that factor uh, and the events that took place that day. Their generation slowly down it. So it's up to us now and it's up to the club to continue this. I'm I think we didn't do the best job initially uh, of honouring it. You know, if you think of um, the original plaque that just stood, you know, yeah. it wasn't the greatest. It was only in 2001 that they put that, or 2001, the George Green statue opened. But I always thought, even when I was younger, I could, I'd never think why it was just that we solitary plaque. I thought we could have done more, probably should have done more at the time because it was such a, a large number of people. Um, that went and, and say, made their ultimate sacrifice just going to a football game. So it's hugely important. I mean, you think back to the 40s. Um, yeah, I was just going to touch yeah, on that, yeah. You know, that was a, a very, very emotional day. That was, um, yeah, it was, yeah. You know, Billy and, and John Gregg leading the teams out. Um, it was, yeah, it felt, it felt fitting. Um, and I think that the fixture itself, for, for everything else that goes on, the, the two clubs honoured it very, very well. Whatever the differences are, whatever the differences are in a lot of different areas, uh, it's one that's always been very much respected and very much respected by the other side as well on a whole. So that's good to see. And we have to keep it at foresight. It can't be something that gets forgotten about. And I, I don't think it will, really, however, in, in this part of the world, be forgotten about. Um, but yeah, it has to remain in the forefront. Come this date, um, it has to be forefront in every Rangers fan's mind. Definitely. That'll, we're just going to kind of wrap up now. I just want to thank you very much for joining me, Stephen. It was 
it was really good to to get your perspective on it as well. It was just it was it was fitting that we like obviously I didn't I had an idea I wanted to to touch on it and pay tribute to the sixty six victims of the the disaster. So thanks very much for joining me on it. it was it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Stephen. Cheers.